0: Who can forget the greatest sporting moment of last summer? Corner delivered, England almost. That, of course, was the sound of the England women's football team, the Lionesses, beating Germany to become champions of Europe. It was the first time any England football team had won a major tournament since Alf Ramsey's heroes won the Men's World Cup way back in 1966. Soon, England's women will try to emulate that famous victory in the Women's World Cup to be held in Australia and New Zealand. There's national anticipation, lots of media coverage, and serious, in-depth punditry about the team's tactics and star players. And what's so extraordinary about that is that it doesn't feel all that extraordinary. We've come to expect the Lionesses and top flight English women's football as a whole to be treated with pretty much the same respect as the men's game. Yet go back just a few years and things were different.
1: Somebody better get down there and explain
0: offside to her. Yeah, I don't believe that. The game's gone mad. Then go back a few decades and keep going.
1: Soccer has only one more world to conquer, the women's world. And in Italy, it's well on the way to doing it. The robust signorinas are putting plenty of shapely Italian beef into it.
0: Once you've gone back a few centuries and looked at what attitudes to women taking part in any kind of sport used to be, let alone a sweaty, rough and tumble team game like football, and you begin to appreciate just how far women's sport has come. Welcome to Sporty Girls. I'm Aula Hill. I'm an engineering student, I'm an actor, and I'm a bit sporty too. I run, I swim, I cycle. I'm an Arsenal fan. And I loved it when the Lionesses won. In this podcast, I'm going to tell the story of how the women of England and elsewhere in the world overcame so many barriers preventing them from enjoying the passions and the pleasures of sport. Barriers that today can seem almost comical, but also strange and even sinister. And they were in every way, very real.
1: From earliest times, men have fostered a myth that has stood in the way of women's participation in sport. The myth of feminine
0: weakness. We're going way back now, to a time when even the brainiest blokes were a bit dim about certain things.
1: Aristotle,
0: 4th century BC.
1: The author of nature gave man strength of body and boldness of mind, to enable him to face great hardships. And to woman was given a weak and delicate constitution accompanied by a natural softness and timidity which fit her for sedentary life.
0: Those clips are from a US documentary made in 1976 which was the first year women were allowed to compete in the New York Marathon. It points out that contrary to Aristotle's pronouncement even in ancient Greece women engaged in vigorous physical activity But it also points out that, more than 2,000 years later, society still dissuaded women from partaking of the pleasures of running and jumping and stuff like that. After all, they were so delicate and frail that they might hurt themselves, mightn't they? The founder of the modern Olympics, the French aristocrat Pierre de Coubertin, excluded women from the first modern games, which were held in 1896. He said letting women take part would be, and I quote, impractical, uninteresting, unaesthetic and incorrect. But little by little, things had already started to change. During the 19th century, it had become acceptable for Victorian ladies to engage in limited recreational activities, as long as they didn't exert themselves too much. Netball emerged in the 1890s as a gentler female version of basketball. There was resistance to this trend. Gentlemen scientists worried that such pastimes could be hazardous to females, especially if they also engaged in the equally risky business of reading books and training their intellects. But women were organizing. They organized their own tennis, bowling, and archery clubs. Aristocratic women played croquet, a genteel game often played with and against men. And women were seeking other changes in society such as the right to vote and the chance to play football on monday 9th of may 1881 the glasgow herald reported that quote
1: a rather novel football match took place at easter road edinburgh on saturday between teams of lady players representing england and scotland the former hailing from london and the latter it is said from glasgow A considerable amount of curiosity was evinced by the event, and upwards of a thousand persons witnessed it.
0: The match was novel indeed. It is considered to have been the first ever women's international fixture. Unsurprisingly, given the stiff and starchy dress codes for women at the time, the man from the Glasgow Herald, I think we can assume it was a man, devoted more words to the appearance of the players than to what they did on the pitch.
1: The young ladies' ages appeared to range from 18 to 4 and 20, and they were very smartly dressed. The Scotch team wore blue jerseys, white knickerbockers, red stockings, a red belt, high-heeled boots and a red and white cowl, while their English sisters were dressed in blue and white jerseys, blue stockings and belt, high-heeled boots and red and white cowl.
0: There was, though some description of the sporting action.
1: The game, judged from a player's point of view, was a failure. But some of the individual members of the teams showed that they had a fair idea of the game.
0: Well, that's almost something, I suppose. The match was won by Scotland 3-0. The occasion seems to have gone well, but trouble was to come. Nine days later, in Glasgow, when England and Scotland played each other again, Upwards of 5,000 people came to watch. Sadly, some in that crowd did not behave well. Hundreds invaded the pitch and, said the Nottinghamshire Guardian,
1: The players were roughly jostled and had prematurely to take refuge in the omnibus which had conveyed them to the ground. But for the presence of the police, some bodily injury to the females might have
0: occurred. A planned third match at Kilmarnock was postponed as a result, and somehow the press managed to blame the female footballers for the violent scenes, which, given that no women were mentioned as having been involved in them, we might deduce were caused by men. Public feeling
1: has demonstrated against the unseemly exhibition in such a manner that the authorities are now frowning down the innovation.
0: An unseemly exhibition. Despite further difficulties, more England-Scotland games took place that summer in the north of England. Women's football was not going away. It has sometimes been claimed that the first of the England-Scotland women's matches was organised by Scottish artist and suffragette Helen Matthews. As Matthews was no more than 10 years old at the time, this seems unlikely. But later in the century... She and her sister Florence Matthews, with whom Helen produced newspaper articles under the joint byline The Lothian Lasses, became keen football fans. And Helen, going by her pseudonym Mrs Graham, played for women's teams, including her own, original lady footballers, or Mrs Graham's Eleven, as it was also known. They sometimes competed against men. And when Miss Graham's Eleven toured Scotland in 1896, its lineup included the first known black woman footballer, Emma Clarke, who was admiringly described by the South Wales Daily News as...
1: The fleet-footed dark girl on the right wing.
0: Soon, a catastrophic global event had the happy side-effect of enabling women's football in England to become further established. A YouTube documentary from Shearers of History takes up the tale. In 1914, the Great War began, dragging every corner of the world into its horror.
1: Cities like Coventry were key to the National Factory scheme, with thousands of men leaving to fight, it was the women who were working in the factories.
0: We had in Coventry some of the key factories for output throughout the First World War. So it seemed like an obvious place for those those football teams to to spring up. Um, And they started playing against one another. And then, of course, as, as they began to gain popularity. There were bigger games against factory teams from other cities as well. Those women put in long, grueling hours in factories, mostly making munitions. And at weekends, they were playing England's national team game. So much for Aristotle. Perhaps the most famous works team of that era was formed at the Preston branch of the Dick, Kerr and Company train and tram manufacturer. The star of Dick Kerr Ladies FC was Lily Parr from St Helens. Parr was quite a character. She had a romantic relationship with her teammate, Alice Woods. She chain-smoked woodbines, and she eventually scored nearly 1,000 goals for her team, which drew huge crowds, including one of more than 53,000 for a match at Everton's Goodison Park ground in 1920. Today, there is a permanent display celebrating Lily Parr at the National Football Museum in Manchester. But the positive trend of her time was opposed. Here's Liverpool University's Dr Sam Caslin in a BBC Teach film, quoting from newspaper coverage from the period, starting with an international fixture. There were criticisms following the England v France women's football match that the game was dangerous for women and a deterrent to beauty. And we see that there's an even bigger attack, this time from the FA, the Football Association, who ban women's football from FA grounds from December 1921. It wasn't much of a thank you for women's contribution to the war effort. They had risen to the challenge as workers and had embraced the freedom this gave them to be footballers. But once the fighting was over and normality started to return, the old prejudices crept back such as the belief that women were too fragile to take part in sport, the view that doing so was quintessentially unfeminine, the conviction that the human female should be prevented from doing the same things as the human male for the good of women themselves and of all humankind. A century later, we might be tempted to laugh at such ideas, but in case it needs pointing out, they haven't gone away and they were deeply embedded in British society at the time. The development of modern day sport, team sports especially, was strongly shaped by English public schools in line with a moral philosophy called muscular Christianity. Well done,
1: that boy!
0: The goal was to build healthy bodies and healthy minds with which to serve God. That might have been handy for civilising the privileged young men who attended those schools. But, almost by definition, it was an ethos that excluded women. At a time when Britain had an empire and the Industrial Revolution was underway, it seemed society demanded fit and disciplined males to lead, to conquer and to labour. The role of women was to be, well, decorative and fertile. Too much running about might interfere with these priorities. Both muscular and brain labour must be reduced at the onset of menstruation, one learned doctor opined in 1874. The trouble was, women had other ideas, and gradually the male-dominated sporting authorities had to begin accepting them. Since 1900, the Olympics had let women participate in some events, including sailing, golf, swimming and fencing. In the 1928 Games held in Amsterdam, they were at last allowed to take part in athletics, though the furthest they were permitted to run was 800 metres, while men's events included every distance up to the marathon. Some newspaper reports of the women's 800 metres final claimed competitors had collapsed or fainted. Such accounts have since been challenged. It seems that some of the runners lay down because they were tired, as you would be, or disappointed and not winning. As a result, the 800 meters for women was dropped from the Olympics program and not reinstated until
1: 1960.
0: Overall though, women's sport advanced. The Second World War saw women again substitute for men in factory jobs and, again, female works football teams were formed. And as Britain entered the television era, some of the nation's female sports stars became household names. Here's an early 1960s profile of one of the most famous from a British Pathé cinema newsreel.
1: Mary Bignall. Since her marriage, Mary Bignall Rand. One of Britain's most versatile women athletes. Hurdler, jumper, sprinter, record breaker, all-round athlete.
0: And what else did the gentlemen of British Pathé want to tell us about this super-competitive all-action powerhouse?
1: Mary Bignall is a pleasant girl. Like other girls, she earns her own living.
0: I say, how terribly modern.
1: Despite her fame, The people who come to the post office where she works seldom think of her as Miss Bignall. To them, she's just Mary, a cheerful girl who does her job well. Well, that's a relief. She might spend an evening in her London flat, dressmaking.
0: You have to smile, because it's quaint and old-fashioned. But there's a revealing undercurrent there too. It's as if Pathé News weren't quite sure how to portray Mary Rand, as she was usually known. The only reason they were paying any attention to her was, of course, because of her outstanding athletic prowess, relentless dedication, and will to win. So why bother with the stuff about her also being a pleasant and cheerful girl who occasionally stayed in to make a dress? It's as if the British public, perhaps of both sexes, were thought in need of reassurance. Don't worry, although an exceptional athlete she's still a proper woman underneath. And when she travelled to Tokyo to take part in the 1964 Olympics, Rand had a lot to prove. She had gone to the Rome Games four years earlier with hopes of winning a long jump medal, but failed. Did she have the temperament to cope with the greatest pressure? Would she fail again?
1: We ran now her fifth attempt. Oh, a beautiful jump. She really failed there. And that's- It looked to me like the first 22-footer ever by a woman. Mary Rand having a look at it. And here she is in slow motion. It's a new world record, 22 feet, two and a quarter inches, a new world record and the Olympic title for Britain's Mary Rand.
0: This time, Rand had exceeded all expectations. And, by the way, as if to confound those ancient fears that girls who got too sporty would fail in their duty to produce babies... By the time she won her Tokyo Olympics long jump gold, plus a silver in the pentathlon and a bronze in the sprint relay, Rand had given birth to a little girl. (laughs) And let's not forget the women's 800 metres. This event had been restored to the Games programme, but was still the longest race women were allowed to run. In the final for Britain was Anne Packer. Here, she enters the finishing straight.
1: Anne passes Maurice Chamberlain of New Zealand. There's only Marie Van Dupuy ahead of her now. Anne's going like a world champion. She's in the lead. Anne Packer
0: win. She didn't collapse or faint either. She just jogged over to kiss her fiancé. What about other sports? During the late 19th and 20th centuries, separate women's teams and competitions became established in more and more of them. The First Ladies Hockey Club was founded in 1887. The first women's rugby match was played in Australia in 1921 in front of 30,000 people. The authorities put a stop to more of it. But in the 1960s, women's rugby began to establish itself in England, Scotland and France. Also in Australia, the first women's test cricket match was played between the home nation and England in December 1934. In some sports, men and women have long competed routinely with and against each other. In ice skating, there have been competitions for male and female pairs since the early 1900s. In one particular class of sailing, no distinction is made between men and women. And the equestrian sports, show jumping and eventing, don't separate men from women at all. Then there are the intriguing rules and conventions of tennis. This was one of the sports deemed by Victorian society to be acceptable for ladies to play. As long as they wore clothing so fussy and inhibiting, it was difficult to move around in. Tennis was also, like croquet, a sport women played alongside men as a social activity. Mixed doubles, whereby teams of one man and one woman play against each other, have featured at the highest levels of competitive tennis in several Western countries for well over a 100 years, including at Wimbledon since 1913. It is a form of the game that demands sophisticated tactics and can excite particular interest if major tournament pairings are between big male and female stars and if the lady of a team holds her own against the opposing gentleman. That's what the legendary Serena Williams did at Wimbledon in 2019, accompanying Britain's Andy Murray.
1: elongated roar from Serena Williams as they bring themselves to set point. Oh, she enjoyed that. Murray, her at 138 miles an hour, didn't lose too much speed going back. (laughs) What a return. She's the best player on the court today, there's no doubt about it. She is the best player out here at the moment. The the returning is just staggering against a world-class server in in Fabrice Martin. Andy Murray was sort of the support player in, in in the duo. Serena was the best
0: player on the court. Yet despite the awe inspired by Serena Williams, Martina Navratilova and other superstars of the modern era, it's been a long, hard battle for top women tennis players to get the same pay as their male counterparts across the board. There was a big breakthrough in 1973 when the US Open became the first of the four Grand Slam tournaments give equal amounts of prize money to men and women competitors. That was largely due to the greatest woman player of her era, Billie Jean King, hinting that she might boycott the tournament if things didn't change. In the same year, King and a group of fellow top women players formed the pioneering Women's Tennis Association. And that September, King took part in one of the biggest and most significant matches of her illustrious career. She had been challenged to a match by her fellow American, the former men's world number one player, Bobby Riggs. Riggs had bragged that even at the age of 55, he could still beat any woman player in the world. Here he is on the Donnie Carson chat show, winding up the American public.
1: She's carrying a banner for the women. Billie Jean King Do you like women? So a lot of people said you don't like women. This is really oh, more like than them. just... I like them real good in the bedroom, the kitchen, and uh, when they bring you the, the slippers and the pipe. And, uh, you know, I, I really think... You're a male that,
0: show when it's face.
1: I plan to bomb Billy Jean King really in this do. match and set back the uh, women's live movement about another 20 years.
0: Riggs had already defeated Margaret Court, another top-ranked woman player most people predicted he would beat King as well. An estimated 90 million people worldwide watched the match live on television. The prize money was $100,000. King started badly, but after nearly two hours of play.
1: Third match point for Billie Jean King.
0: Looks a little like Margaret Court now. ladies would like to have this another double. let Billy Jean won convincingly.
1: And so this is what it's come down to here in the Houston Astros and promoted ceaselessly and shrewdly by Bobby Riggs. Excitement engendered all over the country as Billie Jean touched her husband, Larry King. It began to co- become a cause celebrity. Equality for women, equal rights. It was Billie Jean who fought for equal pay for women in the US Open Tennis Tournament and got it.
0: Yes, it was much more than a game of tennis or a publicity stunt. It was billed as a battle of the sexes. King believed that, for her sex, defeat would be disastrous. I thought it would set us back 50 years if I didn't win that match, she later said. Uh Uh True, in 1973, King, then 29, was still at her peak as a player and 16 years younger than her male opponent. But Riggs had mocked women's tennis and made the match political. King's victory underlined her quality as a sportswoman and showed the steel of the so-called weaker sex. Yet the campaign for equal prize money was very far from over. Incredibly, it took until 2007 for Wimbledon to join the three other Grand Slam tournaments in offering it. And only in the past few weeks has the Women's Tennis Association announced that it has found a way to equalise pay at all other top-tier tennis events. Women have had to fight for equality over and over again, and sport by sport, not least in the most macho of them all.
1: You really do love your sport, don't you?
0: Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm so passionate about boxing and... To win the Olympic medal in in London and to get the the gold medal and have all the fans and all the support I had in Britain was absolutely amazing. Everyone loves Nicola Adams, our double gold-winning Olympic boxing champion. It's extraordinary to recall that until only 14 years before the first of those golds, the British Boxing Board of Control refused to give licenses to women to fight professionally that changed in 1998.
1: A woman's boxing champion has won her claim for sexual discrimination against the British Boxing Board of Control. The board had refused to give Jane Couch a license to box professionally, arguing that pre-menstrual tension made women unstable. We was just, elect over the moon, it was like there's nothing better because we'd just been so belittled in the weeks leading up to the court case.
0: Jane Couch, nicknamed the Fleetwood Assassin, had been forced to compete abroad since taking up the sport in 1994. And even though she'd won a world title, she hadn't been allowed to box in her home country. Once again, it had been deemed that women's biology should prohibit them from pursuing a sporting destiny. The British Medical Association called the outcome of her case a demented extension of equal opportunities.
1: I want to break
0: free. But the first sanctioned professional boxing match between women in the UK duly took place in Streatham in November of that year. Couch was one of the protagonists. She won again. Britain's attitude to women's football was evolving too. True, it had taken its time. Consider this from Pathé News from 1959.
1: Soccer has only one more world to conquer, the women's world. And in Italy, it's well on the way to doing it. Down in the south, Baroness Albini is training a team to represent the country in the international women's football tournament during the next Olympics. The robust seniorinas are putting plenty of shapely Italian beef into it.
0: And from 10 years later, this.
1: Manchester. Blinkers United, a glamour girls' eleven, prepared for their charity football match against an all-stars team. Captain of the shapely lineup was Eve Harrelstead, former girlfriend of soccer star George Best, who was in the showbiz side. At last, the game began, and the ladies set off goal It was they who made the passes on this occasion.
0: But by the end of the 1980s, some people were questioning all of the very conservative belief systems that dominated English football. A Channel 4 drama series, written by Stan Hay and Neville Smith, imagined a woman being put in charge of a struggling professional team. The star of the manageress was Sherry Lungi. Here she is talking to her fictional dad. Number eight, David McGregor, he's a good little player. And he seems to lack confidence. That's maybe because he gets into so much. Anyway they play him too wide. Right. He'd be better in central midfield.
1: You should write to the manager with your views.
0: I <laughs> don't think he can read, unfortunately. <laughs> Tony Morris is probably the most skillful player they've got, but they make him stay on the wing, so he never gets the ball. He should be in midfield, really, because number six is Coughlin. He's just a runner. He doesn't know what to do with the ball when he's got it. So the player just breaks down. In fact, their main attacking ploy is just the long clearance from the centre-half. Through her interactions with the players, the men in the boardroom and so on, Lungi's character, Gabriella Benson, exposes the Stone Age culture of English men's football, most obviously in its chronic sexism. Then, in 2002, a movie broke the mold. That's it, no more soccer. But I'm really good. What did I do wrong in my past life?
1: Jess had a talent that was something special.
0: That was brilliant. Really good.
1: Yeah, almost as good as a man.
0: (laughs) Bend It Like Beckham, directed and co-written by Gurinder Chadder, was a light-hearted film that made some very serious points. In this interview, one of its stars, Keira Knightley, sums them up. It's sort of really girl power and that, you know, is so great because I think um, there's a big thing in England about girls not being able to play football and it's just a great script to say, yeah, we can all do this. Twenty years after Bend It Like Beckham, the England women's football team surely proved last summer that women can be every bit as sporty as men and should be given every chance to be so free from discrimination, prejudice and ridicule. In recent days, Hannah Dingley has been appointed caretaker manager of Forest Green Rovers, who play in League Two. It is the first time a woman has been put in charge of a senior professional men's team in England, a major breakthrough. Yet there are still so many barriers to overcome, including even rules about what women doing sports should wear. As recently as 2021, it took a revolt by the Norwegian women's beach handball team before a regulation forcing them to wear midriff-bearing tops and bikini bottoms when competing was changed. And all the while, male counterparts had been able to turn out in t-shirts and shorts. And only last autumn, it was decided to allow female tennis players at Wimbledon to wear dark-colored undershorts to address period anxiety. For all the changes there have been, the charity Women in Sport reported earlier this year that from a young age, girls are assigned personality traits that are not aligned with being sporty. This means that far too many of them still feel that they don't belong in sports somehow. Honestly, it's amazing. Thank you everyone that came out to support us. This is what dreams are made of. The words of winning goalscorer Chloe Kelly straight after the final whistle of last year's Euros epic. The Lionesses have been leading the way. Long may they be followed by millions more Sporty Girls. (laughs) Sporty Girls was presented by Orla Hill, written by Dave Hill with Orla Hill, and produced by Andrew McGibbon for Curtains for Radio Limited.